Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Afternoon, everyone. Uh, great to have you here. And, uh, and as I said, uh, some of you have already been in this room uh, for a talk by Lee Rolp, who's one of the curatorial team who developed uh, this project. Uh, a little summary, I know you probably know quite a bit of background to this exhibition, but, uh, but always great to recap. Uh, I was appointed as director mid last year, and the day after my appointment, I received a phone call from uh, Naomi Milgram. And uh, Naomi Milgram, I had already worked with. I had shown her collection at the Art Gallery in Auckland, the Auckland Art Gallery Toya Tamaki. In fact, it was my first exhibition um, at, at, um, in Auckland. And it was a selection from her collection that included wonderful photographs by Andreas Gursky, amazing um, images by Thomas Damand, and a whole room dedicated to William Kentridge. So uh, I was very aware um, of her astonishing collection, but that was 2013, um, and, and actually she's bought quite a bit since then. So good things take time. And actually I visited her office and had communicated with her curator for several years to develop a show of William Kentridge for Auckland Art Gallery. Uh, this didn't, hadn't eventuated, and so to receive that phone call from uh, Naomi Milgram the day after um, I had been appointed was a very welcome communique. However, I, it was another two months before I was in the role, and it was a little presumptuous of me to decide exhibitions when I hadn't actually sat down with my team. So um, I am democratic and polite, um, even though I really, really wanted it to happen. Uh, so uh, I then came down and met with uh, Lisa and Mark in particular, Lisa Slade and Mark Horton, and we discussed the possibility. And clearly, they had been thinking exactly the same thing. So it was one of those very rare confluences of the stars aligning, which is why I'm particularly <coughs> wanting to speak in front of this work uh, about um, a homage to Melies' trip to the moon. And, uh, and the, the proper title of this room, there's actually three <laughs> works in this room, is the seven fragments for George Melies, which is behind us here, day for night, which are the fabulous ants, in the uh, shop day for night behind you. And, uh, uh, and uh, sorry, the seven, the seven fragments for Georges Méliès um, are the seven works around this room. Day for night, as I said, and journey to the moon. So two of these works include, and in fact, everything in this room relates to Georges Méliès in some way. And we call this the Méliès room. So, uh, and I, I'll come back to the, the, the confluence of interest because Naomi Milgram was very interested in the Art Gallery of South Australia. She'd uh, worked with um, Lisa Slade before, she'd worked with me before. She knew we all shared a love of William Kentridge. She happens to have the largest private collection of William Kentridge in the world. And uh, she also has a foundation that is incredibly generous to support certain projects. 
So put all of those things together and this is this marvellous exhibition, which is free because of the support from Naomi Milgram's foundation. A little about um, Naomi Milgram, you'd uh, know about uh, a little shop called, um, a little string of shops called Sports Girl and another one called Suzanne and another one called Suzanne Gray. I'm not sure Suzanne Gray is still around, but, um, but uh, she runs that empire. Um, established by her father and mother, uh, who, uh, who are the Beesons, and they also uh, run the amazing, initiated the amazing Tarawara. Who's been to Tarawara Museum of Art? Two great reasons to go to Tarawara. The art is marvellous and the wine's fantastic. Um, and an excellent uh, restaurant there uh, in the hills. In fact, I was there just last month where I opened a beautiful exhibition by, um, that, that Victoria Lynn curated. Uh, so, uh, so obviously there's this great lineage of uh, interest in art within her family. They're philanthropists but they're also great collectors of art. Her parents initially started collecting um, uh, mid-century modern Australian arts, uh, Boyd and Blackmans um, uh, and a lot of abstract artists and, uh, and now the Tarawara Museum presents both that collection and other touring exhibitions. Um, so, Naomi um, also, as, as it happens, happens to be married uh, 10 years ago to John Caldor. Uh, and you might remember John Caldor brought out, uh, initiated a, a quite an interesting project in 1969, which was the wrapping of Little Bay. Um, and, uh, uh, and that was um, really quite a powerful moment in the history of Australian philanthropy and contemporary art. And so you have actually two of the most important philanthropists having their own careers, their own interests and their own trajectories. They just happen to be married. They do live in separate cities, by the way. <laughs> um, so, um, and then Naomi has continued that with her um, incredible project, the M Pavilion in Melbourne, where it's a platform for discussion um, that happens every summer and also her uh, art and design forum that happens in Sydney and Melbourne. So um, an, an incredible confluence of great support which allows this project to be free. Um, some of you might have seen it at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Hands up if you did, just to get a sense. Oh, okay. Um, well, how do you think it compares? Um, this is all I've seen of it today. Oh, I'm good. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. It was beautiful in Yes, yes, great. And uh, any thoughts, yeah? Oh, exactly what I'd hoped you'd say. <laughs> Not that we're in competition. But, um, but I do think the higher ceilings are really great. It was beautiful. I have to say it was personally the most beautiful exhibition experience I've had at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Um, and, uh, but that, that space is a little compromised because of the height. Uh, so we, I think we've benefited from the, the, the height. Um, another thing to say is you may not have remembered this space being used for the last couple of years. Um, this was actually used for storage of artworks uh, and we negotiated um, an outside storage locale. Um, you didn't even notice, did you? Is that interesting? But this is another 300 square metres of space for art because we are so stretched for exhibition space. So uh, uh, there was no way we could do the show without actually coordinating and that's a fantastic effort from the whole team to coordinate literally hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of art into an off, a very safe off-site storage space. 
So it's been quite an effort to get to this point. So what, um, what happened 50 years ago? <laughs> this week, the moon landing, excellent. So um, on the 20th of July, it was 50 years, so that was um, last week, end of last week, uh, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin beat the Soviet's ill-fated unmanned Luna 15 to, to arrive on the lunar surface. Who in this room believes it was a cons CIA conspiracy? <laughs> okay, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures. And I remember seeing this at the Smithsonian. I saw this actual image, beautiful, whoops, come to the front so you can see the image. This beautiful photograph, and I actually had an incredible shudder through my spine to think of that moment when this photograph was taken. Um, and also this amazing photograph with the, as you've all seen, but with the, um, with the starched flag. <laughs> that course there's been masses of discussion about the lunar landing. But what's interesting is I found an article in the Rolling Stone that said um, not everyone is, uh, you know, you've got Hollywood's first man, uh, the onslaught of retrospectives in Discovery and National Geographic and Smithsonian channels, but not everybody is mad for the love of, the, of, the, of recalling the first landing on the moon of the Apollo 11 um, mission. And in fact, Speculation that it never existed and was a CIA conspiracy has risen by 20% oh. <laughs> uh, since 19, um, 1969. So, um, so uh, the, the, what is really interesting, though, is that this is still pretty small. Only 5% of the population believe it's a conspiracy. And given that, 70% believe in angels. 45% believe in ghosts and 35% believe aliens have landed on the earth, it's clear that we're not dealing with a very big percentage of the population. However, all of those things, angels, aliens landing on the, the earth uh, and, uh, and uh, conspiracies are all looped loot somehow into this beautiful uh, film that Kentridge has done that is entitled Journey to the Moon. So uh, this, I will just show you the central image. This is the poster or the opening credits to the voyage to the moon, uh, which happened, any guesstimates about the date? It was a long time ago. Um, 1902, um, and that was Georges Méliès' La Voyage dans la, dans la Lune, and uh, it was a massive hit, okay? It exploded onto the cinemas around the world. It was all of nine minutes long, uh, and in 1902, um, it was presented. It was based on a variety of sources, including Jules Verne's novels, From the Earth to the Moon, and around the moon. The film follows a group of astronomers who travel to the moon in a cannon-propelled capsule. So you'll see little little um, reference to that in, the, in this film. To explore the moon's surface, wherein they return to Earth and with a captive selenite who is a lunar inhabitant. So they make connections with the underground group of selenites. 
It features an ensemble <laughs> cast of French theatrical performers, including Méliès himself, who we see with a very distinguished beard, who plays the, the role of Professor Barnabophilosis. And it became, it absolutely made Méliès wildly famous. The film was internationally popular immediately on its release and extensively praised by studios in, the, in America, uh, particularly because of its unusual length, nine minutes, um, lavish production values, innovative special effects, and an emphasis on storytelling that marked markedly became influential on other filmmakers around the world. It was also quite anti-imperialist, and this is something that um, William Kentridge has absolutely picked up on with his work, which is often, as you will notice in many of the, the works in this exhibition, are quite anti-imperialist in nature. It then immediately, on Melies' death, it immediately um, fell into obscurity and then uh, it was rediscovered in 1930 uh, because he'd actually made a hand-coloured version as well. So I'm just going to show you, remember this image? Okay, <coughs> remember that image, which you all saw before. Can you tell I was a teacher? <laughs> and there you have a still from the Melies voyage to the moon with this hilarious um, image of the moon covered in shaving cream uh, with uh, the capsule, which was cannon propelled, landing on the moon. And what, of course, Kentridge does, which you might have seen behind me, he, he uses a coffee pot. He loves coffee pots. So he uses a coffee pot that he... Uh, there it is. Ooh, there you go, right on cue. It's <laughs> propelling up by the cannon into the stars. And of course, the stars are the ants that he uses these sugar trails to create these beautiful patterns of, um, the, of out of space. So using his most ordinary um, objects in the studio, and there it is. As you can tell, you can see what he's doing, he's playing with, and there he is looking at the sky and then the coffee pot spills, lands on the moon, splat, and this is it, into his eye as he's, you see that moment where he's actually got the coffee pot. So here are some of the other images. This one's hilarious. It's, it's kind of a bit Cher. Remember that image of Cher on top of the rocket ship? Um, so <laughs> let's not think too much about that image, I think. But, um, so there it is in black and white. But you can see incredible production values. It was very theatrical. Any guesses on how much it cost to make the film? 10,000 francs. Okay, and there's the hand-coloured version. Because what happened was, the hand-coloured version... When was it discovered? So, hand-coloured print was discovered in 1993, and then it, and then it was restored. The whole thing was restored um, in uh, 2011. So, there's been a big resurgence um, of this film in recent years. And there it is in the hand-coloured version, which Méliès did at the time. So um, an incredible, uh, and, and you can see some of the other really quite hilarious images and there's the rocket ship and there's one of the selenites, you know, in green, hovering around trying to work out what this strange creature might be. So, um, so uh, it is ranked one of the 100 greatest films in the world. 
uh, and uh, it still remains one of the most iconic um, I images, the, that image I just showed you with the, the capsule in his eye, um, and the history of cinema, and one of the very earliest examples of science fiction. So, a whole lot of reasons of why, um, about why, uh, why Kentridge was so fascinated with this film. Uh, and coming back to the other works in this room, because as I said, we've got this beautiful shot day for night, and a, and a lot of films, of course, are shot day for night, and as he trained the ants with the sugar water, and then, of course, and of course, we're missing the gorgeous soundtrack, you know, um, to be in this space. And then the other works, which is the seven fragments for George Méliès, happened when his one, uh, one of his sons was in the studio, <coughs> fooling around, throwing uh, thro uh, uh, pen pencils around and throwing the coffee onto the wall. And then he filmed him and then reversed it all. And the, the son had such a great time, he said, can I do it again? He said, yes, but you've got to clean everything up first. So this is, of course, how he, uh, Kentridge started this beautiful system. And this is my favourite moment over here, um, third from the end. And you can see where he's um, binding, ripping pages out of a book and then they're all flying towards him. It's this beautiful evocation of reverse time, um, which is happening throughout all of these projects. Um, throughout all of these um, seven, seven films. Uh, but that is a particularly gorgeous moment, particularly when it comes up with the, the, large, the large books. So the reason I... I um, yes, it's worth watching because it's as, as the books get bigger and he's, of course, completely effortless because of the, um, how easy it is as a magician to be able to uh, catch books that are flying through the air. They get bigger and bigger, and then he just wanders away. <laughs> so charming. So um, I was wanted then to, and there's you know some of the drawings of the coffee pot, the saucer, the saucer is the moon. There he is looking in the sky. So the, it's so playful. This is one of these exhibitions. I'm so pleased it's free because there's so much going on, um, layers upon layer. Uh, now I also wanted to reference because. Méliès is a great source of inspiration for Kettridge and, uh, and also for other works in this exhibition. And I particularly wanted to mention uh, another absolute favourite work, which is second-hand re second reading. So you'll know it's way too small to do a talk in there, uh, but it's got a magnificent soundtrack also, and uh, it's immediately come out here and it's immediately to your left. It's called Secondhand Reading. It relates to a couple of stories, and some of you, um, ha some of you would have seen the book, some of you would have read the book, because I know there's a few guides here, uh, and there's a magnificent story in there. So uh, he was commissioned to make a film uh, for a French museum, and he was told by the curator about the story of uh, a, uh, an Ottoman prince who was imprisoned in a castle and, uh, and he thought it was 13th or 14th century. In fact, it was 15th century, um, 1842 in fact, and his, his name was the Sultan Kem or Ziem or Zizim, most known as Kem, and he was a prisoner from the Crusades by the Knights of Rhodes uh, from the Ottoman Empire and he was imprisoned in the Bodrum Castle 
and then he spent the duration of his life waiting for his brother to come and rescue him. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to him, he was brother. It was one of the reasons he was incarcerated in the first place. His brother, of course, had assumed the throne and hence comes the terminology or the turn of phrase that sovereignty, sovereignty knows no siblings or between rulers there is no kinship. So he waited, of course, until he died, plotting to, to return to the throne, which in fact never happened. So what Kentridge was very interested in is this idea of endless time. And you'll see in that beautiful work him moving back and forth, back and forth. And that um, references uh, a proto... If you're interested in this proto, what we call um, not even proto-cinema, but early cinema... Uh, there is this incredible book called Eyes, Lies and Illusions and it was a show at the Hayward a few years ago uh, and I was talking with Lisa Slade um, this morning about the talk today um, and uh, alarmed that I'd left the book at home. She said, oh, I've got one on my shelf. So um, she got to see the show but this is a really astonishing book that has so much marvellous information in it. But, um, but of course, going back... what to the idea of um, the flip book. So, uh, and, and yet it's an illusion of a flip book. It's not actually a flip book. What he did is he certainly filmed the pages turning in a book and then he did uh, stop frame animation, of a drawing mainly of himself pacing back and forth and then he superimposed the two to give the illusion of a flip book. But uh, what's called a flip book or a blow book was in first initiated in 1550 by Geronimo Cardoni, um, who lived till 1576. And he was an Italian physician and mathematician, uh, and he was already trying to describe how miraculous little books and have hidden secrets. So that's the first time that the flick book um, emerged. Another piece, um, and you'll see with the flip book, there's also the uh, many other suites of drawings by Kentridge, and in that case, it refers to what's known as the Majorama, which was uh, first seen in 1830 by a Frenchman called Jean-Pierre Brerez, where he presented these stills, it's like uh, stills of a whole landscape scene. And then finally, um, well, uh, one of the other aspects of that, that Kentridge is really quite brilliant um, is his use of anamorphic, uh, anamorphic drawings and um, in particular what will has already come from 2007 which if you come down the bottom it says it's the very first image that you see um, as you walk into that space and it has the mirror and uh, the drawings so a an astonishing feat of perception and planning to be able to draw not only in reverse but in anamorphic projection and it was our dear friend Leonardo da Vinci uh, where the very earliest um, examples of anamorphic projection um, occurred. Cloud-like drawings which viewed from an extreme lateral angle resolves the head of a child. And then it was Albert Dürer um, and his pupil Erhan Schon who still regarded as an anamorphosis as a bold optical experiment. And it was used, of course, um, throughout... Dutch painting as well. Um, and then there's another uh, device, and this is just a small, this is just a snippet from
from all of these different uh, proto-cinematic devices that have been used, and of course, um, beginning back with the camera obscura, and in fact, uh, with the, the images using, uh, using the glass and reflective domes goes back to Roman times as well. So this is something that has emerged through history over time. But there's a, another, which has got the craziest name ever, the Phenakistoscope, which is what we're working on in the studio upstairs, which um, in, in that's the case, it was invented in 1832 by professor of anon um, anatomy and physics in Ghent, the Belgian Joseph Plateau, <coughs> in, um, 18, uh, who lived until the 1800s. So in that case, and that's what we're doing with the kids upstairs, with just these rotational drawings um, on, on, a, um, on, a, on a circular fan that then when spun and viewed, creates stop frame animation. So um, here's an artist who has everything at his disposal in terms of new technology, digital media, and yet he's, he's activated and inspired and looking back in time with many <coughs> techniques that w have been invented uh, from, the, from the Roman times through to the 15th and, and, um, and 14th century um, through to the present day. But it's really, um, how are we going with time? Oh, we're spot on. So um, I have to <laughs> apologize for anybody who came to my last talk because in my brain I thought it was an hour and I thought I was getting very boring because everyone was leaving <laughs> after half an hour. But then I realized that I, you know, it was only half an hour. So that's the end of my talk, bringing back to uh, the, 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 the present day to how an artist of William Kentridge's genius, as he describes himself, he's a middle-aged, <coughs> white, uh, Jewish, South African, um, living at a time when history is at our disposal and, uh, and urgent messages about humanity and our lessons from history can be explored through art. Thank you so much for joining us today. Is there any questions that anybody's got? <coughs> now you all want to see the Melies film. In fact, it's, it's kind of, you can just <coughs> look at it online, you know. It's, um, uh, and of course it was shown in uh, various lengths depending on how fast the frames, but at 24 seconds, uh, 24 frames a second, it's only nine minutes. Yeah. Enjoy the exhibition.